Well, good morning. My name's Steve. If we haven't met, and Lisa's right, we are still in Matthew, and um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I want to introduce you to a guy named Robert Perry. Uh, the name may be familiar to you. He's one of the great explorers of uh, North America. He mapped out and explored the northern tip of our um, continent or our globe, really, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He was, it was controversy in terms of, was he the first guy to get to the North Pole or not? There was another dude named Frederick Cook who said he was there first, and anyway, ends up that Perry, in fact, did get there first, but the, he had one particular trip that was incredibly brutal and hard, and um, as he began to travel, they knew that they were traveling slower than they normally would, so he pushed the team really hard because in order to get to where they needed to get in time, they had to go so many miles per day. And at the end of this grueling day, um, he set up his, uh, his instruments and got his charts out and got his compass out to try to figure, did, did we make the quota for how many miles we were supposed to go that day? And at the end of the day, he checked and to his shock and surprise, he found that they were further south than when they started. He was like, this is impossible. Did we walk the wrong direction? Did we do, what did we do? He said, no, we actually walked north the whole time. And he discovered that they were on a giant ice sheet that was floating south faster than they were walking north. It's kind of like being in the airport and walking against the flow on one of those people movers. Anyway, or going up a down escalator, one of those kinds of things. Anyway, they found out that that whole time, they had not moved any towards their goal. Now, perhaps you felt that way, even in your Christian faith, that there's, gosh, I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to do, I'm I, I, the, the bald guy said to try this, and I've done that, and I read the scriptures, I'm praying in the morning and at night, and I don't seem to be making any headway. Doesn't seem that I'm any more connected. And this, today's passage in Matthew kind of shows us that we can be walking in what looks like the right direction by all external accounts, but actually be moving away from Jesus by some of our actions and our attitudes. This passage really helps affirm that it's always possible to be, to be right in the wrong way. Let me pray for us. Father, we have affirmed that you are our firm foundation and that you are a steadfast rock and your faithfulness to us is brand new every day. Thank you. Thank you for being a God that is so trustworthy and true. And we know that Jesus actually modeled who you are perfectly. And when we see him, we see you. And God, we would ask that you would open our eyes into this passage, that we might, we might see the work and the attitude and the way of Christ, and that it would change us from the inside. Help us, guide us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. I went back and looked at the preaching calendar just to see how long we've been in Matthew. It might surprise some of you. We started in November of 2021. This is part 36 of Matthew, and we're going to be in it for a while, and it's, it's been great. But I thought, 
perhaps some of you has missed part of those 36 messages. So I thought I would give you an overview of what we've covered so far. Matthew is one of the four biographies about the life of Christ that begin our New Testament, what we call the New Testament. And Matthew takes a particular way of describing how Christ's life um, unfolded. It begins with a genealogy, and Matthew authenticates the authority of Christ by his lineage. And then, only one of two Gospels, you find the, the Christmas story in Matthew and in Luke. We have the birth and the Christmas story that happens in chapters 1 and 2. And then there's some preparation for ministry where he gets baptized, he, he goes and, um, into the wilderness and these kinds of things. And then he begins his first discourse. There are four discourses in the book of Matthew, four longer teaching sessions. And the first one happens in chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. We were in that one four weeks. And it's just chock full with Jesus saying, You've heard it said that this is the way to live, but I tell you it's actually upside down from that. You have heard it said that the first will be first, but I tell you the first will be last, and the last will be first. If you want to live, you got to die. If you want to gain, you got to lose. And he just flips all of these things upside down. Then in chapters 8 and 9, his authority for the words that he has taught is demonstrated by works of miracles. And he heals, he heals sick people, he calms storms, he talks about the spiritual realm and drives out demons. And then in chapter 10, you have the second discourse, the longer teaching of what he does. And it's in that deal that he, Jesus says, I've come with a mission in mind, and the mission is victory, but not political victory. That's not the way I'm going to move. I'm working in spiritual victory, a victory over death and sin. Chapters 11 and 12, people get kind of ticked off about what's going on and opposition starts to happen and there's conflict over the authority of the scriptures and how to live the, the Bible out and that's where we'll be now. And it's in this chapter that the mood can kind of shift. If you were just to sit down and try to read Matthew in one sitting, you would feel the mood shift somewhere here in chapter 12 as Jesus now kind of the emphasis is more towards Calvary, and he's now moving towards the cross in chapter 12. Chapter 13, he'll have another discourse, and then there's more rejection and more things leading to the crucifixion, and that's all in front of us. But today I want to talk about chapter 12, the first half, two-thirds of it. You're introduced to this conflict, and it's over the Sabbath and the Sabbath ends up being a conflict that's on all of the Gospels, but it's only in Matthew in chapter 12. Basically, here's my take on it. I don't know why it didn't show up again in Matthew, but I think it's because Jesus just blows the conflict so far out of the water that they realize, don't bring up the Sabbath again. He's got good answers for it. And so I want to show you a little bit of that. But in order to do that, let me talk a little bit about Sabbath and rest. Now, if you want more on this, you can go back to the series that we did just right after Easter that was called, I think it was something about work and rest easy, um, whatever it was called. I've, I'm old. The nouns leave first. I forget the nouns. So, uh, but I've got all my verbs. Don't you worry. So, um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about Sabbath just to remind you that there's a perspective towards Sabbath that is not... Um, a lack of activity only. 
And we get this from Genesis. I read this from a guy named Walton. He says, Genesis 1 contains a seven-day account of origin, not a six-day account. One frequent, our frequent reference to the six days is, at least in part, a result of not knowing what to do with the seventh day. What does God resting have to do with creation? Why would God need a rest? What would it mean for God to rest? Does God go to a spa someplace? I maintain that even though people are the climax of the six days, Day seven is the climax of the origin account, and in fact, it's the purpose of this origin account, and the other six days do not achieve their full meaning without it. Rest is the objective of creation, but rest is not a lack of activity. It's like, it's like moving in a house, and when you would move in a house, there's boxes and furniture to move, and then you got to move it again and move it again until they get it right, just in the right spot, at least in my house. And then there's boxes to unpack, and suddenly then you re you've gotten moved in and you rest. The house is now a home, and you hang the pictures, and you begin to rest. Now, is there still activity in the house? Of course, there's tons of activity still going on. But you rest from um, moving in. Or think about a kingdom. When a king sets up his kingdom, he goes in and he conquers the land and he establishes different sections of there and he appoints people to watch over different parts of his reign and then he rests in his reign. Is there still activity in his kingdom? Absolutely. But he's not conquering anymore. He's not striving to put everything in order. Walton's example of what this creation account teaches us is that it's, it kind of is moving in that same direction. When you think of Sabbath, you think not so much as a lack of activity as it is about a lack of striving, about a lack of you being in control and having to make it happen. And you actually set aside some of your activity to demonstrate your trust in that God can make it all happen. Walton goes on to say, when Jesus invites people, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's not offering you a nap or a leisure time. I'm learning this when I'm trying to transition into what it looks like to retire. He's inviting people to participate in the ordered kingdom of God where they will find rest. This is a proper understanding of the Sabbath principles. And Jesus when he talks to the religious leaders of his day, he so understands this, he just cannot believe that these guys have gotten it so wrong. The work, Walton, just a little bit more, the work that we desist from on the Sabbath is not that that represents our own attempts to create our own order. It is to resist our self-interest, our self-sufficiency, and our sense of self-reliance. So here's the deal. The Sabbath is to remind us that we're not the center of our universe, that everything doesn't have to go just the way we think it does. And yet, when he talks to the religious leaders, they've taken exactly the opposite approach to the Sabbath and made it a rule and a way of working out their religion. They've got it almost exactly wrong. Do you see that? This means yes. This means no. Do you see it? Yes. They've got it almost exactly wrong. Now, we're ready. Let's jump in and read some of Matthew chapter 12. I'm gonna, I'll jump in and say a few things in the middle of the passage and try not to get lost, but forgive me if I do. At that time, stop. 
what time? Right? That's the way I, I want you to be the kinds of people who, when you read your Bible, you just bombard it with questions. You just, at that time, what time? At what time? Well, the continuing on of what he's doing. Well, what is he doing? It tells us in chapter 11 that he just went into Galilee and he's going about teaching at all these different spots. Basically, the gospel some things happen down in towards Jerusalem. He moves up into Galilee, Galilee talks, teaches and talks a whole bunch down there, goes back down into Jerusalem. The, the, the intensity of the opposition is too tough, goes back up into Galilee, and then the final time when he goes down in Jerusalem, it's the last time he's, they're going to arrest him then. The opposition down there is just too tough. Galilee's kind of his home base. And at that time, he's still in Galilee. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and so they picked some heads of grain and, eat, and ate them. This is allowed in Deuteronomy chapter 23. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered them, Haven't you read? Stop. He just said, haven't you read to some people who have the whole Hebrew scriptures memorized? To say, haven't you read, is like a serious insult. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. This story happens in 1 Samuel 21. He's, he's, David and his men are running away from Saul. They're starving. The priests share some bread. It was all fine. The, and in the David, in the 1 Samuel story, you get the sense. This was fine. Or, haven't you read? Stop. It's like a second slap. <coughs> haven't you read? You've memorized these things. Do you not comprehend in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty, on Sabbath duty in the temple, desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? And there's allowance for this in the Hebrew teachings. Otherwise, no priest could work and no Sabbath worship could happen. Somebody's got to work. Haven't you read that? Don't you actually just do that? And in verse six, as if haven't you read has been bad enough twice, then he says the famous saying that the Sermon on the Mount introduced us to. Remember when the Sermon on the Mount, it's a series of, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And here it is again. This same phrase in the Greek shows up 59 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. But I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, if you could imagine that being said and everyone in the room going, <gasps> okay, so I'm gonna read it again and you're gonna go, <gasps> I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. 
Exactly. <laughs> if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Your scriptures, the things you have set to memory, say over and over again what Micah 6 says. I've shown you people what I demand of you. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. That's it. In the Old Testament, the law is summed up in three statements. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Jesus does better. He sums it up in two. Love God. Love your neighbor. For the Son of Man, get ready to do the, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Exactly. Something greater. He takes the people that are the religious leaders of his day and he says, something greater than your rules around the Sabbath is here. You could see how they might get a little upset. Now watch this. Growing up, I didn't grow up in the church, but I had this image of Christians and the church and Jesus that they were wimps. And the pictures of Jesus didn't help. He always had like um, a baby blue robe on with blow-dried hair <laughs> and a little lamb in his arms, right? And it just, what does that look like to you? Well, first, I'm offended by the whole hair thing. He could have been bald. <laughs> he could have been. Anyway, he just, he just looks like, I don't know. I don't know, not, just not some guy I could really relate to. This guy I can relate to, watch this, verse nine. Going on from that place, what place? Galilee. He went into their synagogue. Whose synagogue? The Pharisees he just had this argument with. He goes and follows them to their place of worship and he picks a fight. He says, I'm not quite done. Let's talk about this a little more. You see why they never bring up the Sabbath anymore? Here's what he says. In that synagogue, there was a man with a shriveled hand. And looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it Lift it out. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If it's good for people, it's good to do. Then he said to them, or he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. When he did that, everybody would have gone. Exactly. 
because he just demonstrates by his authority over the healing that he has the authority over the Sabbath. He is exactly what he said. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. And you would think at this time, their arguments, their best arguments have been corrected. And then the man who they were arguing with has demonstrated his ability to heal something that's been, they can't do. This man's been in their synagogue, I'm assuming, for years. And you would think they would fall down on their knees and worship him as Christ. But that's not what Pharisees do. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Mood change, it's all towards Calvary from here. The religious leaders don't need any more evidence. Their mind is made up. I think this story, and we're not quite done with it, but I think it prepares us for where we are as a culture. And if you don't get anything else, I hope you'll get this little saying that I stole from Andy Stanley. Jesus has no patience with good people who are not good to people. You see, the Pharisees are as good as they come. You think, you think you're moral? These people got rules for their rules. And they are strict about it. They're so rule-minded, they're no heavenly good. And Jesus has no patience for good people who are not good to people. Another way of saying this is we don't simply recite the gospel to people. We share it with the aroma of Christ. The way of Jesus is far more conversational than confrontational. You can't worship a God as the treasure of your life and then go from this place and trash people. It just doesn't work. Don't get mad at me. That's what Jesus said. Love God, love your neighbor. If you just do the first one, you're just doing religion. If you just do the second one, you miss the whole boat and you're just doing relief work. We are called to love as Jesus loved. And what would that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. The passage goes on. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. What place? Galilee. And a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. And he warned them not to tell others about him. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 42. Matthew quotes it and inserts it because it's a demonstration of the character of Christ as he's revealing it in this place. It's the oldest Old Testament quote in the book of Matthew. Here is my servant 
whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, like he said just in the chapter right before this. I am gentle and humble in heart. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And and this idea of being bruised here is a fatal blow. Something that could be bent pretty easily, and it seems like the plant now won't ever recover. But he's a bruised reed who will not break, and he won't break you. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This implies that Jesus is sensitive and kind with the fragile. Some among us today, most of you are sitting in a place of, cur- of, of courage and well-being and everything's okay. And I'm not saying your life is perfect, but it's okay. But there are some among us right here or online, it took so much courage to sit their butt down right here. You just can't imagine. You can't imagine how much courage it took for them to get here. And if you're that, if you're like, man, I'm, a, I'm like a little reed that's just getting swayed. I'm afraid I'm going to break any time. Jesus will not break you. I've just got a little bit of hope left. It's just like a little bit of smoke coming up. He will not snuff you out. He is not that way. He is tenderhearted. And he will not do that until he has brought justice through to victory. Till everything has been made right, and in his name, the nations will put their hope. I mean, Jesus was basically saying, man, these people, they misread the scriptures, and then they make being right more important than people. Jesus points out that the Pharisees, and when I say Pharisees, read the religious people, us. They're missing it. They, they practice a religion without compassion and kindness. They keep lists of rules that brings pride into their life and causes them to look down. And they become people of the list. Christianity cannot be expressed this way. We must live in such a way that the Pharisees aren't the heroes. There's some warning signs out there for us, us religiously minded people. If it's more about no than yes, you might be a Pharisee. If it's more about don't than do, if it's more about behavior than attitude, You might be a Pharisee. And Jesus would say, there's a new commandment I give you. Love one another. Stop screaming. Jesus' example is that I am gentle. I am humble in heart. There's a character on the internet, and I don't know how long it's been around. Um, the character's name is Karen. 
She's pissed off all the time about all kinds of things. You're parked in the wrong place. The hamburger is not cooked right. You're walking in front of my house. I mean, this gal, she, it's, all, it's several gals, but I thought to myself, sometimes our religion makes us look more like Karen than it does Jesus. That we're just going around telling people how wrong they are. And it's not so much about telling people what's right and wrong. You notice that Jesus followed them into the synagogue. He was confrontational in this, but he's not screaming. When Matthew said, let me describe to you the mood in that synagogue when that man stretched out his hand, it felt like Isaiah 42, the suffering servant expressing his love and kindness to people even though they would not believe and even though they plot his death. I think 2024 is gonna be a bad year. Now, I'm not talking about economy and I'm not talking about weather or conflicts between countries. I'm simply talking about the election. I think it's gonna be ugly. I think, no, never mind. Thank you, God. And I think that there's a lot of people who care deeply about how that's gonna turn out in this room. I do. But I think after the election, we're gonna be called to love people. And if we behave like a bunch of Karens, we can lose our voice even if we get our guy in, whoever our guy is. I got no allegiance either way. We could, it could wreck the testimony of the church because we have decided we'd rather be right, not politically. We'd rather be correct. There's a better word. We'd rather be correct than, than loving. We'd rather be, make sure people understand our view rather than making sure they get to see the love of Jesus in us. And I think uh, that'll break the heart of Christ. And just as he, I'm sure in that synagogue when those guys said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He must have rolled his eyes. And said, are you, are you kidding? I think he's gonna, there's a chance that he's gonna look down and he's gonna prompt you in your spirit, don't hit send, don't hit send. 
and you're going to hit it. And you just spewed all kinds of hate all over the people that you're called to love. Now, this is not about having an opinion and being correct on it. Jesus, that's not what Jesus is asking of you. You got a position, state it clearly and kindly. You say, well, nobody listens unless I yell. You wanna bet? You wanna bet, really? I grew up in a family that we thought volume communicated conviction. Nobody won in that family. In fact, you just whisper it every once in a while and watch what happens. Suddenly everything gets quiet. Dallas Willard said, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, still, un unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive and dissatisfied, yet such Christians are everywhere. What they are missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality within the freedom of God's loving rule, the life that is really life. Revelation chapter three, verse 19, it says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those I love, my children, I'm gonna be in the process of rebuking and disciplining you. And then it says, so be earnest and repent. That word for earnest, it's one of my favorite Greek words. It, the root word for that earnest is zeo. Zeo! I just love singing it. It's just so fun. Remember it and later on, not now. Uh, but later on, it's just fun to say. And it's exactly, it means kind of exactly the way it feels when you sing it. Be enthusiastic, eager, excited, energetic. That was a lot of ease. Be earnest and repent. If you're mean, repent. And some of you are mean. You just are, you, you don't wanna be, but whenever you get serious, this happens. <laughs> my very first sermon I ever gave when I got to the end of it, Chip Ingram, who was my mentor for my first 14, 15 years in a church, he said, who are you mad at? I said, I'm not mad at anybody. He said, you look mad. I said, I'm just serious. He said, from now on, when you think serious, everybody else thinks mad. Who are you mad at? Now, I know, I know there's people out there that deserve your anger. I drive with them too. <laughs> but what if you just began to decide in a submiss submissive act to Christ, I will be kind. I will be kind. 
Revelation, the next verse, after it says, be earnest and repent, it says, Christ says this to each of us. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Here I am. I'm standing at your door, the door of your heart. And that door only has a doorknob on the inside where you reside. I can't beat the door down. I won't. But if you'll open it up and let me in, I will come in and have fellowship and community with you. I will walk with you day to day. Men and women, there's, there are some in the room who you believe you're okay with God because you believe you keep the rules. I mean, you look around and you're certainly better than most. And so you hope and pray that God will Great on the curve. And it is what you do with Christ as he stands at your door that will determine your eternity. If you sense, it says, anyone who hears my voice, if you sense that God might be calling to you, don't trust in your ability to keep rules. Don't trust in your measurement of how good you are next to everybody else that you know. Listen, we are a room full of hypocrites listening to a hypocrite talk. Open the door. Open the door and let him in. Invite him into your heart and say yes. Christ said, we were so in love in the world as God is so in love with the world that I came down and took on the penalty of sin and death for you. And if you will say yes, you don't have to, you don't have to line up a bunch of rules. You don't have to do a certain thing. You don't have to dress a certain way or look a certain way. If you will just say yes to me knocking at the door of your heart, I will come in and I will never leave you. Doesn't mean your life will go great from here on out. It just means you'll never be alone again, ever. Say yes. Let's pray. Someone greater than all the rules is here and his name is Jesus. Someone greater than the temple. Someone greater than the Sabbath is here. And his name is Jesus. And his offer to us is one of salvation and love, reconciliation to the God who loves us more than we can ever imagine. Father, if there are some in the room saying yes to you now, I pray you would 
you would impress upon them your presence and your pleasure with them, that you would guard their hearts from all of the things that they, they look back on and regret and that they would have the freedom to look towards you and see a life ahead of them of adventure and love, power. And then God, there are some of us who call you our father that are mean-spirited with how we deal with people and we are earnest and we repent. Will you help us to be free from the addiction of being right? From the standard way of talking with people that is angry and short full of condemnation. And would you help us to be less like Karen and more like Jesus? Please, please, for our sake, for the world's sake, for your church's reputation's sake, please. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Jesus.